welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Uh, today, we just have me and J.P. because we have a special episode. We are exactly seven days to the minute when we're recording this from match day. And um, maybe it deserves a little explanation that we are conducting our podcast sort of in parallel. Uh, first of all, congratulations to those of you who matched. It's an amazing day, one of the most memorable, day, memorable days of your life. And we're sorry we didn't release this episode exactly one week ago. Um, but we didn't know what to expect with the coronavirus uh, epidemic or pandemic. And I'm just looking at uh, world a meter and, and we've passed 565,000 world cases, 25,410 worldwide deaths. And everybody knows this is going to be a big deal. So JP and I debated whether we should just shift this podcast entirely into discussing coronavirus versus continuing things as business as usual, if you will. And we, we felt that if we just went business as usual, people would view this as very being very insensitive. On the other hand, we all know that we're going to get the back, get back to some kind of normality and educate the, the future neurosurgeons of the world. And so we didn't want to derail all the podcasts that we had already been recording and had recorded. So I, I didn't want it to seem weird that we we're talking about financial advice in the midst of a stock market crash and all these things. So this is a very fluid situation. And we do appreciate our listeners understanding that we, like you, are human, and we will get through this together. What do you think, JP? Well, absolutely. I want to echo your congratulations to everyone out there who just matched, um, both within neurosurgery and any any listeners going into other fields. Um, you know, it's one year out from my own match. I, I remember how I felt leading up to the day and afterwards. And in many ways, it's it's almost as big an occasion as your graduation itself. You know, it's determining where you're going to live for several years. And in the case of neurosurgery, more more years than others. Um, and so I want to, again, echo that congratulations and um, wish everyone all the best in these next few months, not just with everything going on with the coronavirus, but in your last few months as students before you enter the workforce and enter the next phase of your professional training um, and careers. Um, I would also uh, echo those reflections on what we're doing with the podcast here. I do think it's important to maintain our regular discussions with regular topics, as well as addressing what has rapidly become the giant elephant in the room, which is this COVID virus. Um, and from a technical note, listeners, as you watch the feed in the coming weeks and even months, all of our episodes specifically addressing the coronavirus will be labeled as such. And the regular episodes dealing with general topics of interest to neurosurgery and, and people with connections to neurosurgery will be named entitled uh, normally. So you can kind of keep track in those two parallel feeds within within the podcast as we put them out. Yeah, that's great. And and I want to reach out to the folks who did match first and say congratulations. I'm sorry you didn't have a match day party. I suspect you didn't. We certainly did not have one at Miami. We matched 
three wonderful uh, young doctors, uh, one of whom is Damian Brusco, who I believe JP had interviewed um, a couple months ago, and two other fine young men. And let me just throw out some statistics. This actually comes to me from uh, Neil uh, Madavati, who's one of the UM medical students. We had uh, seven folks who matched out of UM medical school. And this was a, this was a tough year. Uh, he told me that 74% of folks matched 203 matches out of um, 273 applicants. Last year, the rate was 80%, so 6% higher. And the year before that was 6% higher than that. And when I applied, it was about a 50% match or non-match rate. Um, and so the numbers I know can be a little discouraging for those of you who don't, did not match, and we'll get back to that later. But I do want to emphasize that for those of you who did match, uh, this is a very special time, and I've spoken to many of the students here locally, and I will tell you a couple things about that. First is probably have a lot of a lot of emotion about this because, again, this is unlike anything you've gone through. It's not like applying to college or medical school. You get matched, and you have no choice, or you can choose to not train, right? So many people have bittersweet feelings. In other words, maybe you didn't think this was your first choice. Maybe you, you were surprised by where you matched. The reality is this is going to be your family for seven years, and that's longer than the average marriage. So wherever you matched, you're committed to them. They are part of you forever. Uh, and so congratulations to that. And JP, what, what kind of things would you say you went through in the first, uh, first days or weeks after you matched? Well, it, it, it took time to hit me. Um, you know, the, the knowledge and, and the information that you process intellectually, you learn where you're going to train and you know that where you're going to train will define you as a surgeon, as a physician, in many ways as a person, as we're, you know, exiting those last few years of young adulthood and, and coming into full maturity. Um, all of that you think about on the first day when you open the envelope and you see, oh, this is where I'm going. Um, emotionally, it takes longer and longer to, to hit, or at least it did for me, um, as it becomes real. Oh, it's not just a name on a paper in an envelope. This is a place where I'm going to live. These are people I'm going to work with. And as you said, there's no way out except turning down your training. Um, if, if it's in a situation where you feel like you would want a way out. Of. Um, so there's, there's definitely that kind of emotional or internal lag behind when you learn the information versus when it starts to really hit you. And in many ways, it, it, I didn't fully process it till I actually moved and, you know, found a home, started walking around and getting to know the hospital, getting to know the neighborhood where I'll be living and working for seven years. Um, I also wanted to point out that uh, among the, the three young men we just matched here at Rush, uh, Dan Wolfson, who's joining us from medical school at Vanderbilt. We're going to be having him on the podcast uh, in the next few weeks or months to talk about his reflections on the match process and kind of how he's how he will be processing uh, all of the experiences from match day into preparing to move and get ready for residency. So we can get a, a fresh perspective from someone who will have just gone through this process and will be going through the subsequent months uh, with the coronavirus experience changing everything for all the students matching this year. Yeah, that's that's a great shout out to Dan. We loved him when he was a sub-eye here. So let me give you a couple of Mike Wang uh, do's and don'ts. And for those of you who know me personally, you know that I'm very ideological about this stuff. So 
I think what JP said is important. And let me give you the first don't. Wherever you match, definitely do not consider changing programs somewhere in your residency. There are some very rare, compelling reasons. For example, um, we have a young lady who transferred over uh, to our program from Indiana. That was because she was married to one of our residents. And th those negotiations took months of high level, high, high level negotiation mutually between very friendly program directors and chairs. And it almost didn't happen. And we're very happy to have her. They're very sorry to have, have let her go, but it was for good personal reasons. If you were to think about leaving one program for another, and it is not something super ironclad, it is most probably going to be the beginning of the end of your career. And I'm not saying this to sound draconian, but because I've seen it before. I've seen people leave or get fired, and that's about it. It's very, very hard to recover. You end up like a Colin Kaepernick kind of situation, not to bring race into it, but it's that kind of situation where you've You've left a family and you're homeless. You have to have a direct line to another place. And even when that does happen, because we did have that happen too in Miami, where someone went to another program, you are forever marked as someone that potentially is not going to be the game player uh, by the match. In other words, you're trying to go around the match in some way. So I understand how difficult residency can be, and you would want to quit at certain times in your residency. And I certainly felt that, and I'm sure. You felt that, or maybe you have you have you JP at some point felt like maybe I should just quit. I I wouldn't say I've got there yet, um, but everybody promises me that the day will come. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, now, how about some dues? So I I will never forget my match day it was 1996 at Stanford Medical School, and and all the the people who matched in pathology and psychiatry and pediatrics were high fiving like yay, and they had their bags packed to go to Europe. Of course. This year you can't do that, but they they were already packed, ready to go. Vacations together, big groups of people, medical students, and you know they're they're the sort of real social butterflies of our, our class. The guys who matched in a neurosurgery, cardiac surgery, like us, we were like, yep, we matched. And I'll, I'll tell you what we did. The first thing we did was reach out to our prospective, our future family. And I encourage you to do this. It's not ask us. Start reaching out email, call, the people you knew, all those people you sent those nice thank you notes to, make it happen now. This is where it matters. Call them, say, listen, can I get started on projects? Where should I live? Do you mind if you know I take you out for a beer and, and, and find out what it is about your program that's going to be great? And think about it from that perspective, because think about your dating and now you've, I mean, you're basically betrothed to a new family. Why not be super nice and get a head start ahead of everybody else by three or four months? Could not agree more. Um, when I matched here at Rush in Chicago, I had lived my entire life in Florida, never lived outside the state. First thing I did, wrote a nice email to my chair, a nice email to my program director, you know, thanking them so much, expressing my excitement to join the program. Very next thing I did was talk to all the junior residents who had just moved here from around the country, uh, some of them Chicago natives, and found out where should I live? What's the most affordable neighborhood? What's the most convenient, uh, you know, near the hospital and, and getting in and out at different times of day? Um, these people just went through everything that you did um, and have a year's experience on you or more. They know the town. They know the hospital system. They know what your life is going to be when you arrive in July. Reach out to them. Use their knowledge. Take advantage of them as a resource to set yourself up because the more preparation you can do and the more groundwork you can lay, the smoother your transition will be on July 1st when suddenly you have no time to think about anything but work. 
And then I would add that, you know, you've met dozens and dozens of people on the interview trail, many of whom have probably become your friends. Maybe you roomed with them in hotels, shared information. Stay in touch with those folks. I still am in touch with the folks that were in my class. Some of them are chairs now. Many of them are good friends. We support each other in times of need. Uh, if you need someone to help you in a lawsuit or advice about your marriage, these people can be like sort of the distant, objective, parallel person who's not living in your life but is going through a lot of similar stuff. I, I believe, JP, you still keep in touch with a lot of the folks you are on the trail with, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, not, not just friends from my own medical school class, but as you said, people I met during sub-eyes, people I met on the trail. Um, I always encourage students uh, behind me going through the process to uh, keep in touch with everyone that they met during the interview process to swap gossip and swap impressions of programs. But exactly as you say, I, I'm still in touch with um, fellow applicants who are now interns at programs all over the country. Uh, we talk about differences in our training. We talk about potential multi-institutional research projects. We see each other at meetings. Um, you know, every step of your professional advancement from college to medical school, now into residency, you become a part of a more and more selected cohort of individuals. And so these people are more and more like you. You can relate to them more and more, and you can relate to them better than anyone else in the world. So it stands to reason that these people, you know, you, you can form deep and lasting friendships with them. You're going to have shared experiences that no one else will share. So I, I could not agree more to keep in touch with them and to nurture those relationships uh, moving forward. Yeah. And so over my 20 year career, actually longer than that, since I was a resident, 25 years, I've met 25 classes of applicants, whether at USC or Miami, 20 to 50 people each year. And I, I, I still see these people all the time. And many people remember hanging out and drinking with me, even when I was a resident or at now as an attending. And, uh, you know, we are all a big family, hopefully pulling in the same direction. So let me say something about the next three months, because this is a very special time you have. If you don't fall off the rails in neurosurgery, this will be the last time in your life until you retire that you have a three-month block of freedom. And by that, what I mean is you can wake up when you want. You can do what you want. Uh, nobody's going to tell you what to do. All you got to do is graduate. So yeah. my personal... I'm sorry. Go ahead, JP. Well, I just want to break in right there because I know the medical student uh, response to that is going to be, oh, it's not freedom. I still have this rotation. I still have this work to do. Trust me, this is freedom compared to your intern year, okay? Exactly. And I'll, I'll tell you that one of, the, one of the strongest recommendations I can make as a spine surgeon is you are, think of yourself as, uh, as, as like a, an animal that's going to go through a hibernating period where you will not be able to exercise or eat the way you want. Use the three months to become, and you're all young, right? Become the strongest physically, mentally, without getting hurt, nothing stupid, physically, mentally, psychologically, spiritually, physiologically that you can be because you it'll all be downhill probably after that. Take some good pictures of yourself. Um, you know, lose the weight you need to lose, gain muscle, build your endurance, you know, exercise a plenty, not to the level where you hurt yourself because that's the last thing you want to do. This is a three month period to train for that marathon that is seven years. So please go do that, eat well, um, you know, avoid all dangerous and destructive behaviors. Yeah, I mean, all that advice is even more important this year, obviously, with everything going on. Um, 
it's very common these days for medical students after graduation to, to take some large exotic trip. Um, my classmates, uh, a lot went to, uh, South Asia and many people went through Europe, even a couple to Africa. Um, personally, I, you know, I, I have a large family and we're kind of spread out across the country. So I used this period last year to just visit all of my siblings living in different cities, my parents, um, some of my closest friends who now live in various states. And I, I think that speaks to your point about emotional well-being and, and kind of preparing yourself for that long haul. Um, just seeing these people and spending some good quality time with them while you still can. Yeah, you're right, JP. All my friends, they went on trips. And of course, I see more of the world than they have because I'm a neurosurgeon. You get invited everywhere. Right. I moved in with my grandfather into like a senior citizen living situation. I moved in with him for about a month and it was fortunate because he died uh, the next year when I was an intern. So wow. you know, those are those are great words of advice. Time is precious for us. Yeah. The, the other thing I, I personally did that I think if you have the opportunity, um, I would strongly advise it. If you're if you match somewhere entirely new to you, as I did, I moved out here probably sooner than most people would. So if you're moving somewhere that you've never lived, you don't know the neighborhood, you know, if you have the opportunity, move out there a, a month early or at least a few weeks early so you have some time to just walk around, get to know your neighborhood, get to know the streets, the rhythms of the city and the community where you're going to live. Because again, you want to be very comfortable in your environment uh, so that when you start working, you don't have to think about, oh, where can I get this? Where can I find that? What what are the traffic patterns like? Um, all those questions, you, you want to be um, completely ready to just focus on work once you have to start. Okay, so I'm going to go back to my usual self and break out of depression because you're reminding me now. So uh, I remember reading a book called Dr. X. It's about an intern. This is in the 1970s. And uh, basically, it's it's about they had come up with this term called gomers, uh, which is, you know, like cabbage patch patients, which is very insensitive. But anyways, that's what they used to say. <laughs> and uh, they would have the interns sleeping with the social workers because those interns would be able to place their patients the quickest. So let me tell you a brief story about USC. When Charles Zhu and I were co-residents at USC, the intern master schedule for whatever, you know, whatever rotation you were on was highly variable. And you wanted to do like ENT and orthopedics, not like general surgery and all that. And there was a lady named Christina Agostino, who was a Filipino gal. Everybody has these, right? These are your program director. I don't want to call them secretaries, but program managers. Take a little time, buy them some flowers or chocolate, go hang out with them, be nice to them. These people are going to control your life. And, uh, and, and, you know, ahead of time, like do it before you start. These people are like your, your big brothers and sisters. And, and I'm not meaning to be manipulative. I just, I think that, you know, you, you'll be shocked how much these people will matter to you. And if you like them and they like you, it's even better. So I wanted to sort of, sort of wrap up a bit by, by sending a message to those of you who didn't match. And I understand that there's something like 70 of you this year. So number one, you are not alone. Number two, it is not the end of the world. This might be the test as to whether or not this field is really for you, whether you're really committed. Um, JP, do you have anything you want to say to those folks out there? Well, I think we all know residents and attending surgeons who did not match their first time around and are now neurosurgeons. So as you said, this may be a test. This may be a step in your journey. Um, but if you remain committed, this does not have to be the end of your path toward neurosurgery. 
Um, and also very much, I would like to echo that you are not alone. There, there are a large number of you this year and there are people every year. And as I said, they, they still make it further down the path. Um, if any of you would like to reach out to us, you can always email us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Um, let us know what you're going through. Let us know how you're responding to the news. Uh, let us know what your plans are moving forward. And if anyone would be comfortable to come on the show and talk with us about any of that, we are more than happy to hear you, uh, share your experiences with the rest of our listeners and give you a platform. Yeah, you could even do it anonymously, I should say. And uh, I, I will tell you just briefly in case you're completely at a loss, there's really four paths. Okay. Uh, the first is the scramble. So we're exactly seven days out. So if you're scrambled, you already did it, right? You already tried to scramble and maybe you've got a neurosurgery position. I doubt it. Maybe you got a general surgery or uh, non-categorical preliminary position in medicine or surgery or something like that, like a transition. Right. So that's the first path. The, the second path is to, um, is that you've already matched as a secondary. You've already placed a backup position, usually in general surgery, and you, you know where you're going for one year. And so, you know, maybe it's categorical, maybe it's not. And you're going to have to reanalyze whether you apply in a following year or how you're going to negotiate that. The third path is to wait it out and simply reapply next year, trying to buttress your CV by doing research uh, or, or whatnot. And the fourth path is to take a longer track and do something like a master's, a PhD, or like a pre-residency fellowship, right? So these are all reasonable ways of going about it. We've had uh, residents come to University of Miami through, through all these uh, paths except the scramble. And so, you know, understand the position's open. There are people that don't make it through intern year. And so if you do the internship uh, prelim year, you could potentially uh, get into that position. Now, one of the most important things you will do is not isolate yourself because, again, the best jobs for the rest of your life will not be advertised positions. By the time you've heard about it, it's usually been taken unless it's, it's, unless it's not a good position. So keep in touch with the program directors of your medical school, or program directors around the country. Feel free to reach out, as JP said, to us. We know a lot of people and, uh, and keep, your, keep your, your hat in the ring, you know, keep your hat in the ring and don't lose your skills. Don't get depressed. Don't get into a funk, don't give up. Uh, this may be the most important test of your career. I agree. If you're someone who was applying into neurosurgery, then you should have the spirit to keep going. Yeah, we will be releasing this track today exactly one week off of the match day as a, as a celebratory podcast, if you will, even though it's just the two of us, to all of you out there who are joining the ranks, hopefully for your life. To our fraternity and sorority, uh, our, our club of neurosurgery, and please reach out to us because we want to hear from you. We want to be part of this, and we, we've gotten some really wonderful emails already. Uh, people have given us ideas about future podcasts. People have reached out about how happy they are they match. Some people have reached out that, you know, what to do next, and I think that, um, that everybody who's listening is working hard towards a common goal. Absolutely. Again, congratulations to all of you who just matched this year.